0: Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. I'm Shane Simonson, and today we are talking with restoration agriculture pioneer, Mark Shepherd. So to get us started, Mark, can you tell us a bit about your background and the path that let you, led you into crop breeding?
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs> How many days do you have for this? <laughs> well, see, born and raised in the industrial wasteland suburbs outside of Boston. early 1970s, when all the factories basically closed down and and moved overseas to third world countries where it was cheaper to run everything and you could pollute everything like crazy. And the river at the bottom of the hill, our house had a river that looped around it, a big, huge loop, and the road went straight across. Whether we went north or south, you had to cross this river. And the big game was to guess what color is the river today? Blue, green, red, orange, just crazy colors and it stunk and and I was in Boy Scouts conservation was was talked about quite a bit it was the era of the Bambi movie and you know taking care of wildlife so I got really into you know nature and all things outdoors because I lived in such a horrible wasteland and, and it just seemed like a beautiful thing and after after they went through all kinds of legal actions and protests and sabotage and stuff like that. The companies that were dumping all the chemicals into the river as their waste disposal system, they finally agreed to put in a wastewater treatment. And lo and behold, the river cleaned up. I got to see the river clean up pretty soon. Like after a few years, we could see the bottom got washed away. Stuff started to grow back on the on the outside edges of it. So I got to see firsthand, one, just by leaving it alone. And then two, if we actually do something to assist with the process of of restoration, uh, it it can happen even faster. And I I got the bug and always wanted to be a bum living out in the woods. I couldn't afford to buy any woods. So I bought a clear cut. That was the first property that I bought after saving up for a few years and started replanting it, built a cabin and got it reappraised. It was appraised for like, $25,000 more than I bought it for. And I said, hmm, this is pretty cool because I can borrow up to the level of the appraisal and buy another clear cut and do it again. I can start doing earth repair work as a real estate business. And so that's what I've been doing for the past 30 some odd years. I got properties from Alaska to Maine and everywhere in between and every single one of them. The goal is to buy a degraded farm property or a degraded natural resource property replant the whole darn thing, but replant it with mostly food plant communities so that they can now be harvested by human beings. And if the human beings aren't there to harvest it, it's a wild system and all the animals and wildlife can can feast on it. So we're doing ecological restoration by planting economic and agricultural um, plant communities. And that said nothing about me, I guess, I don't know. And- in particular, your
0: interest in plant breeding is, and your take on it, I think, is something that would be a really great place to, to start introducing you to the audience. So can well, you say a bit
1: more about that? Yeah, what's interesting, I'd mentioned the hill that I lived on. On the south side of the hill was the birthplace of Luther Burbank, plant breeder Luther Burbank. On the north side of the hill was the birthplace of Johnny Appleseed. I kid you not, this place acted <laughs> So Johnny Appleseed would grab all these apple seeds and he went out and he planted them all over the place mostly as a tree nursery then he would sell them to other pioneer settlers coming in because if you planted a orchard that showed that you you had intent to settle there and so they would be able to get their 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 homestead claims better because they planted fruit trees and he had a little bit of income but what that was is this mass selection of random apple genetics that had never happened before. He is the human being that is responsible for more diversity within the apple gene pool of any other person in North America, probably any other person in history. And then Luther Burbank, he was a mass selection breeder extraordinaire. He is the individual that has more plant varieties credited to his name and his breeding work than any other human being on the face of the planet from thornless cacti to multi petaled shasta daisies most of the plum industry is based on plums that came from him the entire fruit industry in canada is all from you know spun off from luther burbank's work and and for those who aren't familiar with mass selection i'm suspecting that your crowd is a little bit more than others yeah you plant a zillion seeds and you pick the ones that meet your criteria and it's that easy so how I got into it, I had those early influences, Johnny Appleseed and Luther Burbank. And then when I'm on a property and I planted a bunch of things, I had read all of the books, how you're supposed to dig a $40 hole for a $10 tree. Well, I didn't have time for that. And then you're supposed to do cover crops for these many years and this much compost and amend this and balance that and get rid of this pest and that. I didn't have time for that, didn't you know have the interest in doing that. So a lot of stuff died. And what I noticed is that the stuff that lived was the stuff that really should have lived because it had something going for it. And then I just started to select the seed of the ones that actually did quite well, and after I started to realize this, then it's like, oh, let's, let's get systematic about it. If I'm going to be breeding trees and I do most of my work with trees and shrubs, I want something that's hyper precocious that I put the seed in the ground and that SOB turns around and and it flowers next year. In the wild, that's not necessarily a good trait because you're putting all your energy into reproduction and you get overshaded by somebody else and you, you just fade away and you disappear. But for me, that's what I want because I want to be able to turn around those generations as fast as possible. On, on my hazelnut breeding, that population of on average, about 80% of the little hazelnut plants that you put in the ground, their second year, they're, they're flowering and producing nuts. Now, that's not enough for it to be like commercially viable yields, but what that allows me to do is to is to keep churning those generations faster and faster and faster. It's essential for, for finding these other traits. I don't think we have to invent traits. We don't have to insert new genes from here or there. All the secrets for these plants to have survived on this planet for the millions of years that they've survived here on this planet, all the traits are in there somewhere. We just have to roll the dice enough until they show up and then go find them. And be paying attention for that. So hyperpercocity is the first thing I'm looking for. In this part of Wisconsin, sometimes the temperature gets to negative 40. So it obviously has to be cold hardy. It has to be able to tolerate weirdnesses in the spring. Because in the springtime, it can get really warm late winter. And then get right back down to you know zero Fahrenheit or even colder. And a lot of fruit around here, especially uh, stone fruit. The, the buds will start to swell and they're all dead in, in the buds. The wild plum populations out here, I think only three or four years in the 25 years that I've been here, have we ever had a crop of plums because of that characteristic. I think maybe for the wild plums, that's an advantage because nobody's used to eating plums until all the, you know, all the wildlife. All of a sudden this year, there's like a zillion plums everywhere. And the plums can propagate and the raccoons eat them and poop them out all over the place. So precocity, cold hardiness, then pest and disease resistant, because I don't want to spray any sprays. And if you get some kind of crazy, ridiculous, ugly disease and die, good riddance. And if these pests riddle you, I don't want to eat all this, you know, wormy fruit or whatever else it is. So those, those are my primary selection criteria. And been at it here on this site now for, like I said, 25 plus years, and the results the results actually show, it's 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 not a, a wildly get rich quick kind of scheme, but we're a profitable venture. We're paying the bills, and that that's okay. Okay is okay in my book. A related note: Did did you ever
0: see that Luther Burbank developed chestnuts that flowered? I think six months from seed. They were functionally annual.
1: Uh, well, I have two family lines that do exactly that. You put the seed in the ground and it comes up and it flowers. Mm-hmm. And and actually, I have some of Luther Burbank's genetics in my chestnut population here. They're not the ones that reproduce real early. <laughs> They're the ones <laughs> actually that have a hard time surviving because of cold hardiness. Most of those have died because of cold hardiness. He was in California after all. you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. So moving on. Can you tell us a bit about your local growing conditions in terms of like how much space you have, the soil, you briefly mentioned the temperatures, how you manage water, fertility weeds and pests, like just, just give us a a broad brush of the, the environment that you're working with and the resources.
1: Well, first of all, average annual rainfall is approximately one meter of rain. And most often it happens in severe thunderstorms. The record rainfall here in one afternoon was 13 inches, so you know almost half a meter of rain in an afternoon. Right down the road, I was almost washed away in a in a 20 inch thunderstorm. So there's there's real extreme rainfall events. It's rolling hills uh, and heavy clay soil, so when it rains like that, the water just runs away. Highly erosive. This is this region in southwest Wisconsin is where the Soil Conservation Service got started in the USA. The Coon Creek Watershed Project was the first watershed-scale project to prevent erosion in the USA on agricultural farmland. So tremendous amount of erosion because all runoff. So first order of business is to set up a series of swales and berms and ponds, or call them terraces and You know, water and sediment control basins, if you want, I don't care what you call them, but a way to channel the water across the slope, soak it in, spread it out, and store it in pools across the property in order to be used later, either for, you know, watering livestock or irrigating, irrigating crops if necessary. So water management was first order of business. The just, just,
0: just quickly. Do you do any? Do you do much crop irrigation, or do you mostly expect your crops to rely on like stored soil moisture?
1: The the crops are are predominantly you know rain-fed and soil moisture-fed. Two different, uh, three now, three different seasons. I've irrigated new tree seedlings when they're put in the ground because it it hadn't rained uh, on this property here from February until third week of September of this year, we had 0.7 inches of rain. That's just a little over a centimeter of rain. Everything was just cooked. It's a federal disaster, drought area, blah, blah, blah. Um, And yet I had green grass all the way through and I never had to feed the cattle any hay until they went off the freezer camp. So a little bit about the summers is they can be gray drizzly and it never stops raining. I think it was like four or five years ago, we had like 72 inches of rain in the year. So twice the normal rainfall. That was for two years in a row. So in most farms, once the the soil is saturated, that water just runs away and it's gone. And so they didn't gain anything from that. Well, here, you know, we stored up so much that a whole bunch of springs woke up that were never around before. And I'm pretty sure that it's all that banked moisture in the in the soil that has helped us to get through this year. That and then of course the deep rooted trees from chestnuts and hazelnuts and, and so on. Temperatures in the summertime for your Celsius people, somebody please do the conversion. Our record high here was 116 degrees. This summer we were 110 degrees. That's Fahrenheit. Screaming hot.
0: That's 46 degrees Celsius. I think that's hotter than we've had here in Australia in, in the subtropics.
1: It, it's pretty terrible. It was really terrible. You know, And, and then because we're so far north, we get like 20 hours of day in the summertime. And so you're like, you know, 95 degrees Fahrenheit at like eight, 10 o'clock at night, just brutal heat. Mm -hmm. Summer wasn't so hot. It was only 110. That was kind of almost pleasant. So 40 and 40 below is the same as 40 below Fahrenheit and Celsius are the same there. So you guys know how cold that is. So it's quite an extreme range of temperatures. So that's, that's kind of like what, what the, what the plants have to deal with.
0: I'm I'm th- I'm thoroughly impressed with the work that you do mass selecting to, to be productive under those conditions. It's it's quite amazing.
1: Well, and, and I would like to defer from me. You think about it. This is how this planet was designed, adapted, evolved, created. Who knows how the heck this planet got here? This is how it operates. That's the nature operating system. And it has been doing just fine. Thank you very much for you know, hundreds of thousands to millions to zillions of years, whatever reference material you're reading, it has always operated quite well. And the mass selection process is how nature does it. The, the tree puts out a zillion seeds, the ones that actually can survive, thrive, and then reproduce, those are the ones that, that pass their genes on to the next generation. Now, suddenly that plant is adapted to that region and its offspring have the traits that allowed it to thrive in that region. So that's not my work. I'm just imitating nature, that's all. And
0: and probably accelerating things as well by bringing genetics together that otherwise
1: would take thousands of years to cross paths. And and that is that is the human difference there is that we can now be active participants in this ecological system. We can observe for traits and we can concentrate the traits that we find favorable to us for the food, the pest and disease resistance, productivity. And yes, we can now transport you know, seeds and cuttings from afar and have new combinations that have ne- never existed before. Um, how
0: do you deal with weeds? Like when you're establishing new trees, do you, do you do much in terms of weed control?
1: What I'll do is I'll mow. Usually, we will plant trees into uh, old pasture that's been scalp mowed. And then you just knife the trees in and turn them loose. That's it. Mm-hmm. Maintenance is uh, at best is getting mowed on either side once or twice a year. There's just I, just, I didn't tell you how many acres it's 110 acres. So 45, 50 hectares, somewhere in that ballpark. That's on this property. And there's other properties that I, I you know have my fingers in. And if you think about it, if you think about an orchard in the classic sense of the word, there's a lot of work, a lot of equipment that's necessary for that. Whereas if you think of a natural system, we don't need any equipment, we don't need any special skills. We can just let it be and, and let it grow. And so the the labor to keep this system productive is hardly anything compared to the labor in an orchard, and the inputs are are practically zero. Really, practically zero. The we use animals, cattle and hogs for for grazing so for any kind of weeds and grass controls that goes back to the weed control question they're also obviously nutrient cycling you know you know accumulating nitrogen fertilizer in the right place at the right time some of the things that that cattle do and i'll use apples as an example in the fall of the year when the grass doesn't grow as fast it's still warm enough that we've got green grass but it's not really growing fast and the the apples and other fruits start to drop their leaves. Will any leaves that had apple scab lesions on them <clears throat> fall to the ground. Cows are hungry, they eat it all up. You know they're cleaning up the orchard floor for me, and they get rid of any kind of apple scab that are there. They also eat any apples that are on the ground. How we harvest is we don't have we don't harvest apples and then bring them to a a packing shed where you grade them and sort them and then have to deal with the ones that you you grade out. We just grade in the field, only the good apples come in for us to use for whatever purposes we're using them for. And then we let the rest fall to the ground where the pigs and the, and the cattle can eat them. And people say, well, you can't let the apples fall to the ground because then all those pests will come out, pupate and live in the soil and come out. You'll have worse pests next year. It's like, well, no, they don't last more than a day or two. We go through a block. We pick a block, the ones that have bugs, we throw them on the ground and after we're done harvesting that block, the animals go in. Boom! There's not an apple on the ground. Mm. So they're <laughs> they're short circuiting the disease cycle by eating diseased, you know, branches and and leaves, and they're short circuiting the pest cycle by eating all these fruit that have larvae inside of it. Uh, one
0: thing that you were really useful in inspiring me is the advantage of growing your own tree seedlings and planting them out as small as possible could you tell me a bit more about that particular strategy and technique compared to the usual way that people think you buy this, you know,
1: meter high tree to, to dig a huge hole and and plant? Well, by putting the smaller trees in the ground it, and typically by the, the trees that we plant, they've, they're one year in a nursery bed, one summer, you know, one growing season in a nursery bed. And you know, probably they're, 12 to 18 inches is the average height of these trees. Some of the trees, chestnuts, especially some of them will get up to like, you know, a meter high, but you know, re- that's the exception. And so they're they're less expensive to purchase if you're going to be purchasing them, if they're small, and we just knife them into the ground and we don't amend the soil at all unless there's a massive mineral imbalance. There, there are some places that, you know, certain elements are way out of whack and we you know we have amended with with minerals on occasion our big issue here is the calcium magnesium ratio is such that the extra magnesium prevents the uptake of a lot of nutrients and it and it causes the soil to really stick and it's a real hard sticky soil i've got exactly
0: um, the same issue here
1: and so so what we have done on occasions is amend with idaho rock phosphate which is calcium phosphorus not very soluble and it, it persists for a long time it has to be basically broken down by going through the gut of some kind of soil organism mm. so other than that we don't do anything and we plant high density in the rows on when we're we're doing a planting of what we'll call canopy trees which are anything that's going to be like head high or taller we'll put those at, at two meter spacing Anything that is a shrub species, we'll put in at one meter spacing. But here on the home farm, because we generate so many seedlings, oftentimes I'll put them in at like 18 inch, so half a meter between between trees. Yeah, Because at the end, of the end of the nursery season, we're selling all, all kinds of trees. I've got all these leftovers. I'm going to put them in at my place. I put them in real close. There's a couple of blocks here I've done that were uh, 18 inch spaces between trees, a double row. One meter wide, so that was a, a stem density of about 4,000 stems an acre. So if you plant, if you plant chestnuts according to the way that the universities in the USA say that you should plant chestnuts, you have almost 65 or 70 plants per acre. Um, now, out of those 65 or 70 plants, let's say you lose 20% of them, now you're down to 40 plants per acre. What kind of production you're going to get out of 40 plants per acre? And they start to produce pretty young, you know, really, you know, you'll start to get some nuts at year three, by year five or seven, you got reasonable yields from this, but you've had this huge space, you know, 10 meters of space in between trees that could have been producing a handful of nuts each. Mm. And instead of buying grafted cultivars, it may cost you 30, 40, you know, US dollars, now you can buy seedlings. Oh, you don't have seedlings. The variability is crazy. Well, that's exactly why we want them. Mm. We want to have these wildly variable seedlings that will cross with one another. And then now all of a sudden, once the trees start to compete with one another, their branches are running into each other. I now say, well, I like this one. It, it has all the characteristics that I want, but the one right next to it doesn't really. So I now cut it down, inoculate it with shiitake mushrooms. I got a yield by thinning out my trees instead of an expense of taking care of these trees and not producing as much. There was one block of chestnut trees. It was one of the times, the first times I ever got flamed by a PhD up on stage. I claimed that I was making $4,000 per acre growing chestnut my very first season. And that person just ripped me all kinds of new orifices. I never said that I made $4,000 worth of chestnut. I said I made $4,000 per acre growing chestnuts. And I was making the $4,000 an acre with produce, mushrooms, pigs, cattle, and chestnuts. And I did actually get quite a few chestnuts because that was the block where I put them in 18 inches apart, you know, one meter between double rows. Mm -hmm. I had 4,000 stems per acre. I probably got, you know, 30, 40 pounds of chestnuts, maybe 50 pounds of chestnuts on an acre in year one. Never would have found. I never would have found chestnuts that were that precocious if I had planted sixty chestnuts per acre and waited for them. Because I, what if I picked the sixty wrong chestnut? Hey, are you familiar with the the dice game Yahtzee? Yes, yes. You have five dice, mm. and if you roll five of a kind, you get a Yahtzee. Now, planting fifty chestnuts per acre, sixty chestnuts per acre, is like playing Yahtzee with three dice. Here's three dice. Go ahead, roll those three dice. Can you ever get five of a kind with three dice? Mm, No, you're set up to lose. Well, then maybe you can improve your yield by adding this to your soil or spraying that or buying this new piece of equipment that will do this and that. That's the game that we're being told wholesale is the way that we're supposed to do things. And that's purely a concept that is not in synchrony with nature and how this planet works. This planet works by putting out a zillion seeds and then letting natural processes and humans are a part of nature we're going to select for the ones that meet our criteria do
0: you have any tree species that you figured out how to do direct sowing oh
1: oh yeah (laughs) it's it's especially easy with real hard shelled ones we have a black walnut here in the u.s it's almost impossible to crack so black walnut butternut actually a friend and i he worked for the USDA at the time, and we designed a, a single row tree seed drill. And that all you do is you change the size of the, of the opening on this. It's a big drum. You put a hopper on top, fill it full of seeds, and then the drum will pick up the seeds and drop it in a slot behind a knife. We did that, geez, like 20 years ago or so. And I've got, I've got probably a third of this property is all direct seeded. Yeah,
0: it, it, it's something that I can see a, a huge amount of potential for. Like it's the ultimate extreme of reducing the investment per tree, the, and to maximize the amount of selection that happens in the process.
1: Yeah, the the only issue with that, because what what happened is after we came up with that machine, we because he worked for the USDA, we tried to get uh, direct seeding acceptable as a technique to be used in you know the conservation reserve program here in the states where they encourage farmers to plant trees. And so we did all kinds of different research blocks, various different locations. Some people were broadcasting with a whirly gig broadcast seeder, and that worked fine too. What was found out though to be critical with direct seeding is that if you did not have stellar weed control, your rodent populations would explode Mm. and eat up lots of your seeds and seedlings. And so for the Conservation Reserve Program, It eventually got approved as a practice, but you had to agree to use herbicide to keep the weeds down because you didn't get enough trees. And I was the control plot in that where we used no herbicides. We had one, two, three, four different direct seed plots on this property and used no herbicide. It's the first time I ever saw deer rooting in the ground as if they were pigs. Mm -hmm. They just went right down the row. They found that slot and they just ate ate them all up. And after the three years of the research project was over, we had to go out and they put some random 10 by 10 meter grid and you got to get on your hands, knees and count all the seedlings that you see. And it had to come up to the equivalent of 600 stems per acre or it's not allowable. Mm. And on those particular plots here, aside from the walnut, black walnut plot was just fine. We couldn't find 600 stems per acre. So I hung my head. I was totally depressed. It's like I wanted us to have some sort of you know, non-chemical organic alternative to direct seeding side, this isn't going to work. So I planted a whole bunch of my Korean pines on one of my direct seeded sites. And lo and behold, to this day, there's probably 1200, 1300 of the species that we were looking for. Mm. But the mice and the deer were clipping them off at ground level and you just never saw them. Yeah. And then once once it started to get established a little bit longer, they built up more root reserves they jumped. They they there's, there's probably three times as many stems per acre as required for a CR. But you ju- we just didn't have the hundred percent, you know, the hundred percent take that they wanted. That's one of my favorite places on the farm because it's so randomized, you know, of species to species. You know, you just kind of wander through here, going from various different, you know, nut tree to nut tree, and never find something that crazy diverse in, in nature.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it one point i would make up that direct sowing tree seeds in particular i think the success rate that you get year to year is going to be really really variable due to changing climate and pest pressure it's almost like how nesting is supposed to work that it, you, you can only get away with doing it once in a blue moon that's
1: right that's right yeah yeah, I, yeah I, that makes total sense yep makes total sense
0: Now, can you tell me a bit more about your main crop breeding projects, like the species that you work with, the goals, how you sourced your original material, cultivation, (laughs) pollination, selection strategies? I'll throw it completely open to you.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the primary species that I work with, the heavy hitters are chestnuts and hazelnuts. And that was my focus from early on, on purpose, because I was looking for a perennial substitute for corn and beans. So the, the chestnut being the high carbohydrate and the hazelnut being the high protein with extra oil. Mm. Other species I'm working with, I'm working, we have actually USDA growing zone eight Persian walnuts that are actually growing on this farm here. And we're, you know, we're USDA growing zone four most of the time, but every 10 or 15 years, we get a test winter down to minus 40. And that's USDA growing zone three. And so these, these, these trees have been surviving you know, minus 40 for, for decades now. And once again, what I was selecting for was hyper-precocity, cold hardiness, pest and disease resistance. Well, with, with hazelnuts, because they've responded so quickly, chestnuts, not quite as quickly as, as the hazelnuts. With the hazelnuts, we're, we're doing diameter selection now. And if you, if you look at a hazelnut shrub, it, it's a, it's a shrub. It's not a tree. European hazel is a large shrub that Europeans and Americans in Oregon, they train to be a tree and it's not really a tree. They're adding extra work. We let it grow as a shrub. And if you look at a hazelnut shrub and you see no hazelnut clusters on it, that's a zero on our one to five scale. If you look at a hazelnut and there's like a hazelnut at every single a cluster at every single node and the plant is almost laying on the ground, that's a five. So we grade all of the different plants by yield productivity on a scale of one to five. They get marked, go through a second year, do the one to five again. Then we go through the third year, marking a one to five. And then what happens is you look at the flags. If, if you had a flag as you were a heavy bearer, a four or a five this year, well, next year, if we go there and there's no nuts on you, we pull that flag because that means you've got this alternate bearing characteristic going on and we don't want that. Mm-hmm. So then if you actually get three flags in a row, you're a, a four or a five heavy yielder and at least show a glimmer of annual bearing every single year. But then what happens the fourth year is we go through and we do a diameter, a caliper on all the different nuts. And we keep selecting through the years for a larger and larger uh, average diameter per nut that are on those bushes. And and that's probably you know the the well it is the hazels are the ones that we've done the most breeding work on because they've responded so quickly they really have and in in the past 15 years of of doing this with the hazelnuts we've increased the kernel diameter um, by four millimeters and if you if you realize it that that kernel is a sphere you increase by four millimeters it's a cubic relationship to the volume so the mm-hmm. volume has dramatically increased you know, per kernel on that plant. So those are, the, those are the most intense ones that I work with. And Asian pears are my favorite. It's probably had the lowest, the lowest, I don't know what you call the lowest amount of good plants that come out of the seedlings. First of all, Asian pears won't grow in this part of the, of the U.S. because it's too cold. So I immediately went to the grocery store and I got Asian pears that were grown in California, cut them open, save the seed, let them grow a year, and grafted those little twigs on top of already existing European pear rootstock, and then you turn them loose. And I think out of probably at least a couple thousand seedling Asian pears, there's two that are edible. One of them is fantastic. It's an amazing, just an amazing Asian pear. It's a little bit smaller than what you would see at a, at a supermarket. and you touch it to your teeth and it seems hard as a rock, Um, but you bite through that skin because we have incisors. It's the most juiciest, sweetest Asian pear you ever did taste. It's unbelievable. And it survives minus 40. So it's an amazing, amazing plant.
0: I'm curious, how did you source your original material that you got started with for your chestnuts and your hazelnuts?
1: So how I sourced the original material, that was way back before the days of internet. And what you do is you kind of like get a nursery catalog from one place and then you talk to the person there and find out who else has whatever, wherever, wherever else it is. And I would get, you know, seedlings from the conservation grade seedlings and some of their, you know, their varieties from everywhere I possibly could from, you know, Southwest USA, California, Oregon, Washington, you know, Minnesota down through Missouri. And then it was Virginia, Tennessee, Ohio, Massachusetts, so I got a, and a couple from Canada. I got a, as wide a range of genetics that I could back in the day. Now with the internet, I can get stuff almost anywhere. I just have it shipped in, mm. and it's <laughs> I almost have a little bit of a perverse sense of pride. You know, you read these descriptions. Oh, super cold hardy. This is like, and you're in Missouri, and you're telling me something <laughs> is cold hardy. Excuse me, and so I have a certain sense of pride in in buying nursery stock from people and killing it. Have you noticed the effect that
0: <clears throat> once you get genetics through the first generation, that it often seems to go through like a an, some kind of reprogramming to make it more adapted to the local conditions?
1: You're you're touching on something that resonates, but I don't know exactly know what you mean. What do you mean? Because <clears throat> it used to be somewhat difficult to get stuff to like survive and thrive and do well. But now it's like, stuff just grows i almost like i almost like i can't kill it is that part of like what you mean
0: yeah yeah like when you buy you know a grafted tree from somewhere else getting it to maturity and then producing seeds is often very hit and miss can be a bit of a struggle but once you have that first generation of seeds and you germinate them locally even if they haven't been dramatic genetic changes there seems to be something that happens in that early germination process that allows the plant to go through some kind of reprogramming.
1: Now, now, I think how you're phrasing it is what interferes with the scientist in me, and that's okay. Uh, But (laughs) I have noticed a similar phenomenon and that the original material that I get just doesn't seem to mature and get ready to produce as quickly as seedling stock from stuff that's been bred on site why that is let's just leave that out let's just say i have i have experienced that as well mm. and so why that is i don't know one of the reasons why i think that's possible here is that uh, my plants are you, you can't call them anything other than hybridized because you've got a this kind of hazelnut that kind of is not you know five six i've got you know, European chestnuts, Chinese chestnuts, American chestnuts, hybrids from fifty different nurseries all over the place, plus my own stuff. They are mutts of mutts. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think that probably also has something to do with it.
0: Yeah. 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 What, yeah.
1: what see, I was <laughs> gonna say what I'm not sure, and I don't care. I want I want performance. As long as they're performing, that's great. This one of the favorite questions for me to field on farm tours there'll be this tree that's dead or just falling apart. And it's horrible <laughs> and people are like, oh my, what's wrong with that tree? I say, who cares? Yeah. Uh, who cares? I'm,
0: I'm, I'm very much leaning towards being a, what's the word? Like a biological agnostic. It's like, there are so many things going on inside an organism. And it's really fascinating when a scientist, you know, announces some new discovery, but so what? Like it, it works. It has worked right. for, for billions of years. Let's just find ways of making it work for us.
1: Yeah, it's just recently, you know, this this is not related to plant breeding, but, you know, I do a lot of work in Africa and we found this research that if you have three termite mounds per uh, hectare of ag field, your crop yield increases by 30%. Mm. So the conclusion of this scientific research is, therefore, we need to find out what is it that these termites are doing so we can come up with a spray that we can now add to our fields to get 30% in? (laughs) What moron thought of that? How about have termite mounds in your ag fields and deal with it? Have we missed talking about anything that you would
0: like to cover? Because you focus, I think, probably more talking about the production and the design side of things, but we're really interested in the breeding side of the equation.
1: So I want to go back to your I want to go back to your biological botanical agnostic thing. There is so much that we can know, so much that we can know, and of all the different research and things that I read, I can't give you a percent because somebody will get on my case about it. But so much of it is absolutely unnecessary. Doesn't really matter one whit. What matters to you and what matters to me is that these plants are thriving. They're growing. They're reproducing they're healthy they're nutritious uh, one of the things that has been discovered is that the trees that fend off pest attacks more often have more phytonutrients in it that help us to prevent you know cancer and other various different diseases they're better for our immune system that's mm-hmm. all that i care about is that these things are doing okay and and that
0: factor is probably something that a human being without any training can tell by taste if you gave them the choice of the better and the worst product most human beings well, would be able to, or at least you could train people quite easily to actually, recognize it.
1: Actually, a lot of those, a lot of those compounds are the bittering compounds, and and that's actually where a lot of the the research came from on that connection between the phytochemicals in food is that the the more pest resistant and disease resistant the the, the plant, the more bitter and nasty it tasted to people, mm. and that's probably why it is not tasty to pests either (laughs) it's got all these different things in it but those are the those are the compounds that we need for for our own you know disease resistance Mm -hmm. joe robinson eating on the wild side is a place that cites a lot of research related to that Mm -hmm.
0: so mark if you could work wonders with any species
1: what would you create oh you ready for this I've got gray hair in my beard. You guys see it. (laughs) I kind of wouldn't mind fiddling with coffee and cocoa. And if you can imagine having like Minnesota grown coffee or, you know, Canadian cocoa, and and there are variants that are found in high elevations, super cold, you know, super hot. All you got to do is go out and find them. So that would, that would, Take care of a couple of my, my things that I like to do is take care of my travel bug, go around the world, finding examples of serious high elevation coffee and cocoa, and then the whole plant breeding thing and start breeding, selecting for coffee and cocoa that's adaptable to cold climates. And you think about how easy it is to negatively select against you know the, the plants that can't tolerate cold. You just plant them out there and if they freeze off over the winter, they aren't the ones.
0: Yep. They're just making room for planting more.
1: That's right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> There's supposed pres- to be coffee and cocoa. That'd be my. That would be fun. There's a precedence here. I recently learned
0: that Quercus, the oaks, until, were until recently a tropical genus, and it was only during one of the ice age ice sheet retreats that a group of them started hybridizing and
1: developing cold tolerance and following the ice sheets north. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Another thing too that you know it, it's not on the breeding side of things, but if you, if you look at papaya. It produces 85 zillion seeds per fruit. It it starts, they start to fruit in three or four months. We could start growing papayas as an annual plant in many parts of the temperate world, just put them in the field to grow for four months. It's like corn, you know, except we're getting papayas instead of corn.
0: With your work with hazelnuts and chestnuts, do you ever think it might be comparable to the history of tiocente being turned into corn? That there could be a, a transformation of those species to make them like they're still semi-wild in their form and humans adapt technologically to using them as a food source.
1: But the guy, the guy who actually was the one who discovered the link of of corn, maize and teosinte was Dr. Hugh Iltis at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's probably deceased now. But I met with him and conversed with him on several different occasions. He just absolutely thrilled with the stuff that I'm doing. And some of the things that he pointed out to me, this was, you know, a, a decade ago. Anyways, the, the corn genome is tiny compared to the genome of, of various different woody plants. And especially chestnut, he did all whatever research he wanted to do on it. So if you got this huge genome, the possibilities for recombination are just astronomically more than what Teosinte ever had going for it. And that's why we need to do the mass selection. As many seedlings as we possibly can, as fast as we can, <clears throat> like the ones that, you know, that, that I've got these two family lines that they come up out of the seed and they flower right away. That's with the chestnuts, you know, and the two-year hazelnuts. What if we have, we don't even know the expressions. Who would have thought looking at Teosinte that it would turn into the corn that we see you know, growing over half half the USA, we have no idea what's in there. We just need to roll the dice more often and, and see what comes out. And and, it's
0: fun, and and people like you have done the really difficult early stage of bringing genetics together and mixing it. Now that you're sharing that that germplasm with other people around the world, like that, that's the easy next step.
1: And and part of what we're also doing too is is. The Forest Agriculture Nursery, ForestAg.com, is where a network of nursery growers that do mass selection breeding, and and we all have all these different seed sites from southern sites, you know, middle middle latitude sites, northern sites. We'll gather all the seed, grow them at a couple of different nurseries in different locations, just to get those plants out of the ground. So when you're buying, you know, tree or shrub seedlings from Forest Ag, you're getting seeds. Seedlings that were bred this way. This is this is how we keep doing it. Now that you know, if we're sending out hundreds of thousands of plants per year, how many more new genetic experiments are happening in everybody's backyards and fields and farms? It's it's I think really really encouraging part, and it's and it's an important part of assisted migration. With crazy fine climate, we have no idea which way things are going. Are we going to go to an ice age? We're going to go to a steam bath? Are we going to go to a desert? We need as many genetic variations out there as possible to survive whatever next year throws at us and the next year and the next year. So it's that part of what I like about it is how many people can be involved and how many people can be involved doing really, really critically important work.
0: Can you tell us more about Forest Ag?
1: It's a edible woody crops nursery by plants, forestag.com. <laughs> Sweet, thank you. We're yeah we're we we have a network of growers and we have one genius with growing plants. He can he can take a you know a, a seed and and turn it into this monstrously beautiful seedling in in one year. Uh, so Tom is my primary nursery manager guy and he takes care of the various different places. We have places where we're doing grow out of our seedling pool. So there's the seedling pool and this is this is the composite population of all the hazelnuts that have gone through this program, all of our species, we do it this way, but I'm using hazelnuts as an example, because it's the most developed. Then out of that pool, we'll, will take cuttings from certain ones and they're now cultivars. Well, then we also take seedlings from our elites and then the elite seedlings uh, we pair elite A with elite B based on their characteristics and so those are out in separate breeding plots and then there are some that we have taken we got seven different controlled cross breeding plots where we have parent A and parent B that they that they cross and we know it's like it's it's an F1 hybrid we know who each parent was and we can kind of track the transfer of traits and what is interesting is our original controlled cross seedling line came out in 2012 and it's it no longer performs as well as the general population Mm -hmm. once upon a time it outperformed the general population because it came from the best plants well as another 10 years go by the breeding in the seedling population has continued whereas the controlled cross plot stays the same and we have exceeded the performance of the controlled crosses that original controlled cross and our other ones We're still, what what we do as soon as we start getting seed from them, the controlled crosses, we plant them out. Parent A gets planted here. Parent B gets there. Then we evaluate to see which ones perform the best. And then we take those and, and for example, our controlled crosses now, the the 2012 ones, we only sell seedlings from parent A because the seedlings from parent B lost the fast, the hyper-precocity trait. We don't know what happened to it. It's gone. It's not in that. So we don't, we don't use parent B as a seedling source. We just sell those for people to eat the nuts.
0: Another big question. What is your vision for the future of food in your community?
1: It depends on where my community is because, you know, I, I'm like, I'm really becoming an ecological planetary community guy. And so like this planet is my computer community. So The future of food, how I would like to see it, is more decentralized, networked, individuals controlling their own destiny and and their own breeding of their own plants and foods and exchanging that material with people instead of controlled by legislation, by big business, and by the academic elite that say this is the only way that you can do it. And here's the statistics and data to show that because all they want is royalties from plants to keep funding the research that they're doing. I I don't want to see a food system that's controlled by somebody owning the genetics to your plants and somebody that's preventing your right to produce your own food and create your own habitat. I'd like to see a world of decentralized, you know, imitation imitating nature, restoration agriculture type farms, every hill and valley everywhere. Really
0: so you mentioned Restoration Agriculture. That's one of your books that you wrote?
1: Correct. That's the first book that I wrote. And if I thought it would win three literary awards and become an Amazon bestseller, I would have done a better job at it. It was first released in 2013, 2013, I believe it is. The basic premise is that we imitate natural plant community types. And I'll just pick one because I already mentioned chestnuts and hazelnuts. Well, the oak Plant community type, oaks are almost always found with a whole series of other plants with it. Now, oaks are fagaceae, so aren't chestnuts and so are beets. So they will live with the same companion plants. We'll call them companion plants. So with oaks, you'll find prunuses, which are cherries, which are either tall tree cherry, medium sized trees, bushes, or prostrate growing cherries. They grow well with malus and critagus, which are all they or in the rose family. And then hazelnut is the dominant shrub in that system, currants and gooseberries, grapes, then you know grasses and flowers that grow all around. And who hangs out with the grasses are the, the herbivores that would graze on all that grass. And of course, there's so much biomass being produced that there's the decomposition cycle, all the different fungi that are growing with that. So if we think about going from tallest to shortest, we can grow chestnuts, cherries, apples, hazelnuts, plums, apricots, currants, gooseberries, grapes, mushrooms, grass, cattle, hogs, ducks, all in the same place. And they're all eating different parts of the environment. We can can have the animals take care of the system for us. And then we eat the fruits and the nuts and the berries off the trees. And of course, eat the fungus. I think I eat mushrooms probably every day of the year. There's so much wood around here that's decomposing. It's mm-hmm. an amazing amazing that we can take carbon and turn it into protein. That, that's an absolute miracle. So you don't have to eat the animals if you don't want to. There's all kinds of plants in the system, but the animals are essential for management and nutrient cycling.
0: And thank you. And I think you wrote two other books as well. Could you give us a brief overview of those?
1: The One of them is Water for Any Farm. And it basically describes how to manage rainfall and runoff on your farm. This, my whole farm, I'm living on New Forest Farm. I started with attempting to follow the protocols set up by P.A. Yeomans in his book, Water for Every Farm, the key line design protocol. And it didn't take me long to realize that it wasn't really workable the way it was written out. And I found out the reason why is that Australia is a very hydrologically simple continent with no more than a third order stream. And so the math and the geometry that describes Australia works everywhere in Australia, but it doesn't work in the Mississippi River Basin, which is the most complex. I think it's a 10th or 11th order stream and it just doesn't work here, it's too crazy. So then my third book is the Water for Any Farm Engineering Field Manual. So if you are going to manage water on your property with swales and berms, terrace channels, water and sediment control basin, ponds, that sort of stuff, if you're going to do that, you better do it right. Because if you capture a whole bunch of rain in a big rainfall event and there's blowouts, you can cause problems downstream. So the engineering field manual is explains how you can set up a, a rainfall a runoff management system on your property Following uh, everything that we that is written about in that book is compatible with USDA agricultural runoffs and water management guidelines. And if you run it by local municipalities and states that may have different water boards and litigation, they can follow that and see that it tracks with USDA. And you can find a, a way to to meet in the middle and design a system that's safe and effective at the same time.
0: Wonderful. So final. Opportunity for an end plug. How can people learn more about what you're doing or get in touch with you if you're open to that? I'm guessing you're pretty pretty busy. So maybe
1: that's not you the know, easiest thing to do. The, the way to do that to get in touch with me or, or to learn more and go to restorationag.com. And that is restoration agriculture development where we help people design and install water-managed agroforestry systems. Part of that is restoreculture.com, which is an online course. That was recorded a number of years ago that discusses the basic ecology of how and why restoration agriculture systems work and how to interact with them in order for them to function properly. And then probably the, the best way to learn something quick, depending on how fast you get this, this podcast out, is to go to Acresusa, I think it's com. Acres, that's my publisher. And this December at the annual conference in Covington, Kentucky. I'll be doing all day training, restoration, agriculture uh, type systems. And then I'll be doing later on in the conference, like a one hour, hour and a half presentation on uh, water opportunities with the water management system. So acresusa.com.
0: Brilliant. I'll put all of those links in the description.
1: That'll be great. So thank you so
0: much for taking the time to talk with us and tell us more about the amazing work that you're doing. You're
1: welcome. And thank for thinking it's amazing. And hey, everybody, this is really easy. Get involved, plant trees, plant way too many trees, way, way, more, than, way more than you think is prudent. <laughs> and then the ones that don't do well, let them die. Don't sweat it. We want the ones that thrive.
0: Before you go, I wanted to say thank you for years ago when I was starting on my farm, Mark, I sent you an email and you encouraged me to look for local species to work with. And you were crucial in giving them the final push to get working with our local bunya nuts. So oh, I've been, yeah. yeah, well, I'm in the middle of bunya nut territory. So I've been collecting remnant genetic diversity and introducing a South American species to hybridize with it. So that's my my big life's project to,
1: to is, kick. Is the South is the South American species also a bunya? It's the piranha pine,
0: but it's in the same genus, so it's one of the oh. Gondwanan sisters. Yeah, yeah. So I'm basically I'm doing a mass genetic hybridization and then, you know, hopefully before I die, I can send that seed all over the world to help found new domestic
1: populations. You, you just gave me goosebumps all over. It's awesome. That is so awesome. <laughs> I love hearing that shit. That is so awesome. And well, One of the things we did to address that needs talking about is soil. Trees don't need soil, for crying out loud. They're growing on the sides of cliffs. They make the soil. They yeah. don't even have to be constrained with, with good soil. Jeez. Mm.
0: No, it's all good. It's all good. I just wanted to take that moment to say thank you because, yeah, that's like I'm in my 40s now and I have 40 acres of land in Australia in the right location. And who else would have the time and the interest and the patience? And the opportunity to do that kind of project to try and domesticate what's very much a wild species at this stage and yeah hopefully if i can get it through that that first hybridization event that hybrid swarm can be the foundation for a whole new crop that and, congr- and i don't
1: i don't think that it's complete complete domesticity that we're looking for i'm looking for yeah. wild productivity
0: yeah 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 no i totally agree <laughs> there i totally agree there oh thank you so much again for your time and who knows, maybe in a few years' time if the if this podcast is still going, we can check back in with you.
1: That'd be great. And and thanks for sending the book. Was it you, Joseph, that sent that or Yes. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
0: You're welcome. You've been an inspiration over the years. So uh, glad to talk with you in person.
1: Glad to meet you guys as well. Okay. Well, we'll catch up another time. All right. Okay. See you guys. See ya. Bye bye. Bye
0: bye.